We're, gonna, we're looking at snapshots from the early church. And uh, we're going to look at a number of different scriptures today. They'll be up in, on the board. They're in your bulletin as well. But if you're someone who likes to have that Bible in front of you, there are a few Bibles available for anyone that would like to as well. But we've been looking at snapshots from the early church. Looking at the book of Acts, which is all about the earliest years of the church. And so far, we've been looking at how the early church was a good example for us. Well, today, we're going to look at how the fact that the early church, though it usually is a good example, was also imperfect. (laughs) There there are lots of mistakes that they have made, and we're going to learn from their mistakes. Uh, The good thing about church history, not just the early church, but all of church history, is that it is filled with failures, mistakes, sins, division, everything you can imagine. They've, you've seen it over and over again throughout church history. The only perfect church is in heaven. Sometimes called the church triumphant. Those who have already gone to be with the Lord. And friends, I think that's good news for us, honestly. It's good news for us because we are imperfect. We are sinful as well. You ever heard this before? If you never, it's kind of funny. Uh, if, you, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because it's the day that you join it, it will now be an imperfect church, right? You're going to add your sin to a, to a perfect church. But there is no such thing as a perfect church. In fact, it's much better to think in terms of church health. Is it a healthy church or an unhealthy church? Because there's no such thing as a perfect church. And if you're a visitor or you're relatively new to First Baptist, I would say I think First Baptist is a healthy church. We've got room to grow. We're not perfect. But I do think you're in a healthy church where the word is um, at the center of what we do. But friends, we certainly could, like the early church, we could look at our blooper rail at First Baptist. We could look back over 250 years of major mistakes that have been made, ugly sins that have been committed, divisions, and foolish stuff that's been said, and even just funny, goofy stuff, like a squirrel running around the sanctuary before we join you. So we got to add to it today. The first time I've ever seen that happen here. But I think this is good. I think this is good because, one, we learn that God is a gracious God who puts up with us and is patient with us. And we learn from the mistakes of the past as we move forward. So look with me. We're going to look at first at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. As I said, uh, there's an outline in your bulletin as well as a scripture there. Uh, we're going to look at how sometimes Christians act badly. Um, is the first section, 5, 1 through 11. Sometimes Christians part ways. And sometimes Christians speak poorly. So we're going to look at how they act badly. Five, chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11. We read this. But a man named Ananias, common name. We've come across other Ananiases in Acts. This is a new one. With his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Well, it remained unsold. Did did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, 
for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So let's look a little more carefully at this section, this narrative of what happened here in the early church. Ananias and Sapphira are members of the church in Jerusalem. They're Jewish uh, Christians. They meet with the church there, the earliest uh, years of the church. And what's going on there is that whenever somebody has a need, whenever the church has a need or someone in the church has a need, someone will sell their property and give it to the church. Um, and then the church can use it. No one has to do that, but that's something that was happening often. In fact, Barnabas, and we're going to look more closely at in just a bit, Barnabas is one who was known for selling off. He was fairly wealthy, we believe. He sold all of his property, gave it to the church, and they used it. Well, Ananias and Sapphira kind of like this idea, <laughs> in principle. And they decide, okay, let's do it. Let's sell off our property, but we're going to keep some for ourselves. No one knows it, but we're going to keep it for ourselves. And then we're going to go tell the church, here's, the pro- here's all the money from the property that we sold. You can use it as you like, because they like the idea of the attention and the praise that comes from giving all of your property to the church. And they figure nobody knows except for us. But the truth, of course, is that God knows. And Peter calls them in. He asks Ananias, gives him another chance, is this the whole thing? Is this the entire amount that you sold? And Ananias, right there, to Peter, lies. And then he dies. And then the same thing happens a little later with Sapphira, his wife. They bring her in three hours later. She hasn't heard anything about her husband. They bring her in and says, Sapphira, is this the entire amount that, she was, that was sold? And she lies again, and she dies right there on the spot. Now, some people have seen this and said, wow, that is harsh. I and mean, that seems a little harsh. Uh, some people think it's harsh on Peter's part. Um, that Peter, man, he should understand grace. He, of all people, he denied Jesus three times in his life. And here he seems to have no mercy for somebody who sins. But understand, this isn't Peter doing anything. I mean, Peter's not actually doing any harm to these people. He's simply declaring what he knows God himself has said about the situation. That he didn't actually physically harm anybody. What happened here was this a heart attack or a major stroke or a brain aneurysm or uh, we don't know. But it was their time. God said in as a temporary discipline for what they've done, they die there on the spot. Now, it's interesting that God actually does use it for good. It says great fear breaks out throughout the church. So there's a, a higher sense of the holiness of God, a, a clearer sense of the nature of our sin and its depravity. So God actually takes this and, and turns it to good. It, it actually increases the, the, the church's witness and its uh, calling towards purity. Uh, This is a temporary discipline, by the way, I believe. Uh, I don't believe it's saying that Ananias and Sapphira are cut off from God for eternity. Uh, I think that they, as Christians, as members of the church, sinned against the Lord. And there was a temporary discipline for that. It It cost them their lives. But God uses it for good. Now, what was their sin? I think it's important for us to probe a little closer here. What is it that they did that was so bad that God decided to take their lives that day? Now understand, and Peter makes this clear, it wasn't that they didn't give it all. In fact, Peter says, you didn't even have to give anything. (laughs) Nobody has to sell any of their property. Nobody has to give anything to the church. And that's true, certainly for us here. Friends, nobody, we don't have required fees to be uh, here on on Sunday. There's no required membership fee or anything like that. We we call people to what the scriptures say in terms of giving, but it's really between you and the Lord, ultimately. 
It wasn't that they sold it all and kept some. He says you could keep all of it. There was no obligation for you to give any of it away at all. What was their sin? I think it was three things here. One, they lied. They lied. They said it was all when it really wasn't all. So uh, he says, how, has Sa- how have you allowed Satan to so fill your heart? Uh, Satan is the father of lies. He is a deceiver. He's the liar from the beginning. So when we lie, we, in a sense, align ourselves with him in his rebellion against God, who is always uh, the truth, always speaking the truth, when we lie. I think lying, friends, is a much worse sin than perhaps we recognize it to be. So just basically, one thing they did is they lied. They said it was one thing when their reality was another. They knew it was something different, and they said something else. I think also is greed. Uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't want to give everything because they wanted to make sure that they were nice and comfy and had some of the resources kept to themselves. They kept some of the money because they were greedy. And third, and perhaps worst of all, was pride, spiritual pride. They wanted to be seen and known as somebody who gave everything to the church. They're watching Barnabas give all of it, everything to the church, and they're saying, look at all the way all the people are praising Barnabas. Not that Barnabas is necessarily asking for praise. But look at the way the people talk about Barnabas. Look at Barnabas. Look at the way they think of him now, that he did this great thing for the church. We want that for ourselves. We don't want to have to pay the cost, but we want that pride. We want to be seen and known and looked at as somebody who would give all for the Lord. Friends, I think we can relate to all of that, can't we? We can relate to all of that. The church is full of imperfect people. It was full of imperfect people 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. It's been full of imperfect people for 2,000 years. And even today, it is full of imperfect people, of sinful, broken people who mess up all the time. If not, my job would be very easy, by the way, (laughs) as a pastor. Can you imagine? I mean, I remember being warned, I think it was in seminary, they said, be mindful, Rick, as a shepherd of the church, that sheep bite. Okay, just be, it's not always easy. There, there are imperfect people that we're dealing with all the time. I remember there's a little, little saying that, uh, oh, how great it will be to be with the saints in glory. But to be with them down here, that's another story. <laughs> but actually, I joke. But the reality is, it is heartbreaking to watch. It's heartbreaking to watch people turn away from the Lord, turn back to sin, destroy their lives. Uh, I, just as one example, I obviously won't mention anyone by name, but there was one man who I, I thought was, had really given himself to the Lord, was walking with the Lord, reading the Bible, growing and starting to mature the faith. And then he, I heard, had walked away from the Lord and became an atheist. And about a month or so ago, he walked into the church with a woman who was not his wife, drunk as a skunk, rambling on about all weird things. I don't even know what he was talking about. Probably doesn't even remember the event. How tragic it is to see people turning away from the Lord. People break It's heartbreaking to watch what happens. Uh, people lie, as we saw right here, right? People lie. Uh, oftentimes, I'll, I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, this is just a small thing, but I'll say, talk to someone and they'll say, hey, I'll, I'm going to come visit your church on Sunday. I'll be there on Sunday. And when I first started a ministry, I always thought that meant they would actually be there that following Sunday. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, less than half, probably like literally a quarter of the time, if somebody says, I'm going to come visit church and I'll be there Sunday, they'll actually be there on Sunday. It almost never happens. That was an eye-opening thing for me. I think when it comes to giving, uh, I think we see an issue too. Again, nobody has to give, but we do ask our members to give 10%. Uh, by the way, I don't know how much people give uh, as a pastor. I, I'm uh, not interested in knowing that number. We do have some people who have to know that number. But this is 
is from uh, Market Watch. Less than 10% of Christian church-going Americans give 10%. Less than 10% give 10% or more of their income. Those who do tithe tend to be in a better financial shape than those who don't. Nearly one in three tithers are debt-free versus 13% of non-tithers. But friends, very few people actually do what the scriptures call us to do in terms of giving. So that's an issue too. And then issues of pride. You see that all the time. People want to be, re- not just do well, they want to be recognized as someone who does well. Uh, if you're, I'm a Celtics fan, I've been a Celtics fan my whole life, so the saying is you go to a Celtics, ga- Celtics, uh, you go to a Celtics game to see what goes on in the court. You go to a Lakers game to be seen as somebody who goes to a game. That's kind of the difference, right? So when it comes to church, are you someone who goes there to see God? Or are you someone who wants to be seen as a churchgoer? This issue of pride is still there. And I would just say, let's learn. Let's learn from Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> let's learn from their mistakes. Let's first of all be honest. Be honest. God knows your heart. God, you can fool everybody, but as we see right here, but the Holy Spirit. And the truth of it is, I think you can only fool everybody for so long. After a while, people begin to, begin to sense it. Is this an honest, trustworthy person? Or not. Be honest. Be generous. Be generous. Not as a show, as we read right here, but truly and really. And how is your giving? How is your giving? I'll never know. But, you, but the Lord knows. You know. And our finance people know. Because they got to, somebody has to know on this side too. How is your giving? You know, one of the things they, they said that keeps people from giving really is the fact that Americans are so steeped in debt. Uh, that's what I, in that quote I just read. So many Americans are so steeped in debt. It's one of the reasons why we have a, want to have a more holistic view of, of when it comes to stewardship. And we're offering this Financial Peace University. I just talked to Rich before the service. Uh, Rich and Pam are going to be teaching it again. We taught it last year. It's excellent. Hopefully, again, this coming September on Tuesday nights, we'll do it again. Get the, the whole of your stewardship under control, which enables you to give more generously to the work of the Lord. Be humble. Be humble. Uh, be open about your sins. You know, don't give the illusion that you're perfect. It doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help you, that's for sure. And it doesn't help anyone else to say, to give the picture that you're perfect and you're righteous and that you never do anything wrong. Be open about your, your sins. As uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, we, are very, uh, we have no problem, we're very comfortable confessing our sins to God, but we're very slow and hesitant to confess our sins to one another. He said, when in reality, it should be the exact opposite. God alone is holy. We should be far more fearful of going to Him to confess sin and far more open about confessing one sin to another sinner. But we have, we have it turned upside down, friends. Let's be, let's be clear about the fact that we are indeed sinners who need a Savior and we need help. Uh, the, the church is called to be a hospital for sinners, right? Not a museum for saints or people who come here in need of help. Don't give the impression that you're perfect. And then know that Christ alone is our Savior. The church will always disappoint you because it's filled with imperfect people who act badly at times. It's filled with Ananias and Sapphira's and people like you and me. And it will at times disappoint you if your hope is in the people of the church rather than in the Lord of the church. Uh, One way I like to put this to people, because I talk to people all the time who say, I've been so badly hurt by such and such a church. Our church or another church, whatever church it may be. Uh, what do I do? And my answer is usually, I want you to look at the bride. I uh, look at the groom rather than the bride. <laughs> look at the broom. So yes, the bride of Christ, the church is sometimes very imperfect. 
It can be very disappointing. And the stuff she does is absolutely crushing at times. But look at the groom. Look at Christ, the Lord of the church. And you will never be disappointed in him. So friends, if you're disappointed, if, 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 you, if you get disappointed in seeing how the church acts, look to the groom. Look to Christ. Get your eyes on him. And that will sustain you. Sometimes Christians act badly as we see it. Now you say, well, that's the members of the church. What about the leaders? I mean, the, here, here uh, the, the leaders seem to be do, doing fine. It's the members. Well, come to 15, 36 to 41. We'll look at the leaders as well. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are not exempt from uh, being sinners just like the rest of us. Chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. Sometimes Christians part ways. Sometimes Christians part ways. And, you know, we, uh, the Apostle Paul, we've been looking at a lot of him, and he's a great example in so many ways. But like any of us, he's not a perfect person, neither is Barnabas. So we come to 15, verses 36, uh, chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. We read this. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, they're on the mission field, let us return and visit the brothers in every city that we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had, to, had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone with them to the work, had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Cilicia, Assyria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what happens here, friends, if we look closely at Barnabas and Paul, they have to part ways. Uh, Paul comes up with this great plan. Let's go back and revisit all these churches that we planted. Let's go look at all, let's check in on them, how to try to strengthen them, spend some time with them. Great plan uh, to do it. Barnabas agrees, uh, and they make a great team. Paul and Barnabas have been together. They've been working side by side. They've been, uh, they make a great team together. Uh, But Barnabas says, yep, this is a great idea. I'm going to take Mark, who happens to be also his cousin. Uh, Mark is a young man. He is the gospel writer. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's the same Mark. Uh, He's the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. He's the one who probably knew Peter very uh, closely and got most of the information on that. He actually appears briefly in the gospel of Mark. Uh, He's one who runs away in the garden of Gethsemane naked. Uh, They grab his robe. He takes his robe off and he just takes off naked into the woods. That's his only piece he gets in the whole gospel there. But uh, he doesn't have a great track record. So not only did he run away there in the gospel, but... During a previous mission trip with Paul and Barnabas, he had enough. He got homesick or couldn't take it anymore, couldn't take the food. I don't know. Whatever it is, he decides to take off previously. And Paul here says, I don't want to bring him along again. It's too much of a liability. It's too much of a risk. He's not ready for it. It leads to, some, some, to, actually to a sharp disagreement, it says, between Paul and Barnabas. So they're having words with one another about this. In fact, they can't even come to a conclusion, a peaceful conclusion, and they say, let's just go in separate ways. That's so sad, isn't it? I mean, they were a great team together. And they say, we can't even make this work at all. So Barnabas takes Mark, and Paul takes Silas. And in the end, just like we saw earlier, God uses it for good. Because now you have two mission teams out there doing the work of the Lord rather than just one. And ultimately, that's good for the kingdom. But friends, even today, it's sad to see divisions. It's sad to see Christians have to part ways from one another. Now, who's at fault here? Uh, it doesn't tell us. Notice that. Luke doesn't tell us who's at fault. Was, was Paul being too rigid? You know, was he not being flexible enough? Was he not being gracious and compassionate enough and saying, let's give Mark a second chance. God always gives us a second chance. 
Maybe Barnabas was being too trusting, too naive. I mean, Barnabas is the one who took in Paul when he was just recently converted from being a terrorist, basically. Uh, Who's at fault? It doesn't tell you who's at fault, ultimately. It just tells you that they had to part ways. We do know this, that Paul and Mark make up. Paul and Barnabas, we don't know. We never hear anything about it. But Paul and Mark make up. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. And again, Colossians 4, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So there's certainly a... Them two have sort of made up by the end of, of Paul's life there in 2 Timothy in particular. But Paul and Barnabas were not told what happens going forward with them. Friends, this is also a picture of what's happened throughout church history for 2,000 years. The church often divides. It can't stay together, or believes it can't stay together. That's why we have something called denominations, right? And uh, we have different titles for different groups of Christianity. Here are some, all right? And these are all real denominations, by the way. I'm not making any of these up. There's the ABC, the SBC, the BGC, the CB, the EPC, the OPC, the PCA, PCUSA, the UCC, the CCCC, or the four C's, the UMC, the ELCA, the IFCA, the EFCA, and the CMA. And I'm not even getting started. I mean, there are so many more denominations even than that. And some of the names of some of these denominations are interesting. You know, primitive Baptist. I don't know. What's a primitive Baptist? I don't know. Or particular Baptist and that type of stuff. And general Baptist. But... The church over its history has seen this very thing. We say we can't stay together, we divide. How sad it is. And friends, yes, even our own church, First Baptist Haverhill, has had a long history of church fights. A long history of church splits. And a long history of internal, internal conflict. I remember as a teenager, I grew up in this church as a teenager. There was a big issue over the music. And a group of folks, I'm not saying, I don't know who's at fault. I, I, I didn't have that perspective, but... One group eventually took some members and moved and started another church in in town. That kind of thing happens again and again. In our recent past, we've had issues. In the last five years, we've had issues over staff or or over a church merger, over music. And sometimes people say it's easier just to leave. I've spoken to many people who have left. Some of them, I think, had some good reasons why they decided. But many of them are based on non-essentials, unimportant things. I think that's the case. We divide as Christians. It's a sad part of our church history. But as we saw here, God can use it for good. There's an old saying, in essentials, unity. In doubtful matters, or non-essentials, liberty, freedom. In all things, charity or love. I think that's a good guide. Let's learn from Paul and Barnabas. Uh, let's learn from Barnabas. What do we learn from them? Seek unity in the gospel. Let that be what holds us together. Not side differences, but let's hold together in the gospel. Let's grieve over division, which is a hurtful thing when it comes to our witness for Jesus. Let's put aside non-essential issues and don't make that what is the center and what brings us, breaks us apart and stay together. Let's seek unity with other churches. As I said, church history is is filled with a lot of division. Let's work against that. Let's seek unity with various churches, even if churches that we disagree with, as long as we hold to the same gospel together. I just went to a a board meeting for the uh, Baptist Churches of New England, which I'm I'm part of, and just exciting to see what God is doing here in New England. 
And we're excited to see what he's doing in our denomination, but not just our denomination, what he's doing in this whole area. And we want to encourage and help other churches and other ministries and organizations that aren't the same as us as long as we agree on the gospel. Such good things happening. I think that's the move of the church, away from all the division into denominations and coming together instead in, on the essentials. And friends, let's learn from our mistakes. Learn from our mistakes and keep going forward. Not grow bitter about things that have happened, but look to God who brings good out of it. Like Paul and Barnabas here. Yes, it's sad to see them have to part ways, but what does God do? He creates two mission teams out of the one, and they go forward and bring the gospel to new places going forward. Sometimes Christians part ways. Let's learn from their mistakes, and let's learn from the grace of God in the midst of that. And then thirdly, sometimes Christians speak poorly. Sometimes they speak poorly. Uh, tw- uh, chapter 23, 1 to 5. Chapter 23, 1 to 5. Uh, I don't mean to be picking on Paul, but this is again Paul at the center of it. Uh, like I said, Paul overall is a, is a great example to us of the Christian faith. But again, like all of us, he's a sinner. Chapter 23, verses 1 to 5, we read this. Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin. He's been arrested for his faith as a Christian. Uh, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. (laughs) Sort of loses it. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, Paul has been arrested. He's been falsely accused, like Jesus. He's on trial. He has to meet before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would be the political leadership in Israel there. And he gives a defense. The high priest doesn't like his defense for whatever reason. Maybe because the high priest thinks he's guilty of blasphemy and and following this new Christian faith. and So he didn't like Paul taking that opportunity to try to defend himself and say he's done nothing wrong. So he orders him to be struck. uh, And Paul snaps at him. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And probably they're wearing these white robes. And so he's saying, you you look like a a wall, white on the outside or clean on the outside. But on the inside, again, full of hypocrisy and so forth. It surprises everybody around them. And Paul gives a sort of apology by saying... I shouldn't have spoken poorly against a ruler of the people because the high priest was not just a religious ruler. He was also the political leader there as well. What did Paul do wrong? Again, just like with Ananias as far as take a minute and look at what he did wrong. First, um, understand that what people are doing to him in this situation is far worse than anything he's done. All right? So again, he's been falsely accused. He's been put on trial. He's been beaten. And now he has somebody strike him in the face, which was not a legal thing to do, right? So all that's been happening to him is far worse than anything he's doing. But that doesn't mean he's without guilt. I think that's important for us, friends. Look at what you have done first. Regardless of what anyone's done to you, look at what you have done wrong. Nobody makes you sin. That's the way God has created the world. Nobody can force you to sin. (laughs) What you do in response to what other people do is ultimately your responsibility, nobody else's. This is something I do all the time when, I, uh, when I'm doing counseling. Let's, I'll just choose the example of marriage counseling. Somebody comes in and gives me the list of all the things that their spouse is doing that are wrong. And my answer usually is, okay, all that, I'm not even going to question you on all that. I'm going to just assume everything that you said is true. 
What have you done wrong? Let's talk about that. And what could you do better in this relationship? Because you can't change him or her, depending on how you're looking at it. You can't change the other person, but you can change your own actions here. So let's look at your own actions. Let's look to repent from there. I can talk to her. Or I can talk to him in a different conversation. But right now, let's focus in on you. So yes, what people are doing to Paul is far worse than anything he's doing. But nevertheless, he's still responsible. What does he do? First of all, he loses his temper. He loses his temper. Uh, so all of us have a, a temper. And he sort of speaks out of anger. So secondly, he's not guarding his tongue. <laughs> so it's, it's anger actually leads to what he says. And then third is that he mocks an office holder. Uh, he mocks somebody in a position of authority, political authority, which you're not supposed to do. There should be a, a certain level of respect there just for the fact that this person is in an office of authority. And Paul even admits that. I should not have said that against the high priest. So friends, let's learn from Paul's mistakes here. Uh, let's learn from his name. First, don't let anger dictate what you say or do. Anger is very rarely a good guide in life. I do say rarely because there are times, perhaps, God, God created anger. Anger is you know, one of the emotions that we have. And there is things called righteous anger. Uh, you're angry at something evil in the world, something, some injustice in the world. And perhaps anger can, at times, motivate you to action. So I don't want to say never be led by anger. But very, very rarely is anger a good guide in life. Now, you ever heard there's a new term? So you got alcoholics, you got workaholics. This thing called rageaholics now, right? Rageaholics, where you are addicted to your anger. It's like a drug. Just let it fill you. Beware of your anger and letting it lead you. Watch your speech, secondly. Watch your speech. Notice the difference between Paul and Jesus here. Uh, Paul, when struck, loses his temper and he lashes out with his tongue. What did Jesus do? Do you remember? He remained silent. Jesus remained completely silent. To the point where the people are saying, how could you remain silent with all these accusations coming against you? Until he gets put under oath to speak. And then he says, then he says the truth. That I come from the Father's right hand. Friends, our, I think our tongues get us into more trouble than perhaps anything else in our lives. We're so quick to speak. Watch your speak, speech. And now, when your job is primarily to speak, like a pastor who preaches, <laughs> you're definitely going to get yourself into... Uh, into problems. And I certainly have made my mistakes from the pulpit here. I have my bloopers. One time, some of you guys may even remember this, I made a mother-in-law joke from the pulpit. And it was off. It was a little off kilter. It was not a good, it was not a good joke. And it was like on Mother's Day or something. And I, I just kind of threw it out there. I didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. Well, everybody I talked to after the sermon, after the service, they didn't remember anything I said in that whole sermon. They just remembered that joke and they were surprised that I would use it. Ruined the whole sermon because I did that. Then I go up to my mother-in-law who was in attendance <laughs> and she said, you know, I didn't know you, f I said, I wasn't making a joke about you, I was just making a general term. She says, yeah, I, I won't take it personal, and she's wiping away a tear, you know, from her face. So, oh man, so I, that's just one example of many. I'm, I'm haunted, I don't know if you guys are, you're haunted by foolish, stupid things that you've said and done in the past. Uh, this includes not just speech, but emails, texts, things like that. I, I've been too harsh on email in response to people. At times, I know that. I hate email, by the way. Uh, I would rather talk to somebody on the phone or rather text them or something. Uh, even text can be misread, but emails are so easily misread by somebody, right? You, they, they see you as far more anger, angry than you are. I've heard if you're going to praise someone, do it in writing. If you're going to criticize someone, do it in, in person. Because criticism always sounds harsher on paper uh, and, uh, and you want that. Uh, well, things always seem 
stronger on paper. So if you're praising someone, you want it on paper. If you, don't, if you want to criticize someone, you need to do it in person. And then thirdly, show respect to authority. And I think this is a timely one for us, would you say? Uh, this is a strange political environment we live in. Be careful to show respect to those who are in office. And here's what I would say. Um, Paul, when it comes to people, they could be absolutely wrong. But if you rage against someone in an office in a way that really ultimately reflects more on you than on the person, then you really lose the right of that criticism or lose the effect of that criticism. Be careful to respect the person who is in an office. Doesn't mean you don't disagree. Doesn't mean you don't have genuine, actual criticisms that need to be brought up and so forth. But there is a certain respect that Christians have always offered those who are in positions of authority throughout, its church, throughout church history. Unless we fail, which we do at times. Friends, for Christians at times <laughs> act badly, as we've seen with Ananias and Sapphira. Christians at times part ways. We can be divisive. It's happened so often over church history. And Christians at times speak poorly. And this reminds us what? That we serve a gracious, merciful, patient God <laughs> who doesn't give up on us when we mess up. It reminds us that we need a Savior. Reminds us that though we never reach perfection in this life, we continue to seek to grow towards it by the grace of God. Depending upon Him for mercy and looking to Him as the true example for us, the Lord Jesus Himself. Let's learn from our mistakes. Let's grow into Christ-likeness until we reach the day as the church and the presence of God is saved to sin no more. It's another hymn, one of my favorite hymns. There is a fountain. This is one of the lines that, uh, second or third verse. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Until that day, may the Lord keep us depending upon His grace and growing in the likeness of Christ. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its honesty, clarity, genuineness, and truth, Lord. We've been looking in the past a few weeks at how the church is a great example to us of the Christian faith, how they have modeled for us what it means to walk with the Lord and what it means to serve Him well. But today, Lord, we've looked at some of the mistakes, some of the sins, some of the divisiveness we've seen uh, even in the earliest church. Help us to learn from their mistakes. Help us to remember that we serve a God who is gracious to us when we fail, who sustains us and keeps us and protects us. Father, I do pray for all that are here. I pray specifically, for perhaps for any here who don't know the Lord Jesus, that heaven look to Him as Savior and Lord. Help them to recognize, Lord, that we are all sinners. Again, this is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. But that the great physician, the Lord Jesus, has come to redeem us from our brokenness, to restore us into relationship with Himself, and to grant us the inheritance of eternal life. I pray, Father, for any here who don't know you, that they would come into a relationship with you, our King and our Creator, even this day. For those here who do know you, Lord, who have walked with you, perhaps many for many decades, help us to continue to grow, recognizing that we have not reached perfection. To continue to seek to be healthier and healthier, modeling Christ, until that day, Lord, when the full church is ransomed to sin no more. 
Lord, thank you, Lord. It's a hot day, Lord. Thanks for, gather, for this church that has gathered together to worship and to be together as your people. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay together and sing one more hand.